The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. My name's Matt, a pastor here at Tri-City Church, and uh, it's a great day to be here. We should be full of thankfulness for God's Word, that we can come and hear from Him. And today, uh, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians, if you're, if you're new here with us, is a letter from a man named Paul to a church, to a group of Christians that he started in the town of Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians. And uh, we are going to be in chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. If you have a Bible, now's a great time to open it up. If you don't have one, you can grab one just outside the doors. There's some on tables there. But really, uh, this, this letter is interesting because Paul is writing it at a time when there should be great anxiety in his life. Uh, he is writing from prison. He's in prison in Rome. In fact, he's waiting uh, to hear for a hearing from Caesar. Uh, and at that hearing, Caesar is going to tell him, either you can go free or you're going to be put to death. At this moment, as Paul is writing, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's under house arrest. There are not very many reasons why, that he would have in life to be uh, happy or joyful. And yet, he keeps writing about joy. In fact, joy is the, the dovetailed joint that connects last week's passage with this week's passage. Uh, in your Bible, if you have and you look at it, you'll see that verse 18 is actually cut in half. That was done after the fact. Normally, it would kind of all flow together, but to kind of organize the thoughts, we cut it in half. But if you read it all together, you see a beautiful and unified declaration of the joy that Paul has. So I put it up on the screen. This is it in its entirety. First, uh, ending off last week's thought, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. That part is for today. And so he's saying it twice. Why? Well, because he's got lots to be joyful about. Last week, he's saying, I'm joyful. Even though I'm in prison, I'm happy because out there, people are talking about Jesus. And that's my hope for everyone, that they would know Jesus. Even people who are doing it from bad motives, that's cool with me. I'm happy in spite of my circumstances because I know that's happening. Today, this week, as he goes on, he's not saying, uh, talking about his joy in spite of his circumstance, but even in the midst of his circumstance. Here in prison, he's saying, I have reason for joy. Even waiting to hear whether he will be killed or whether he will be set free, Paul says, I have reason for joy. And so our title this morning is, is Joy in Life and Joy in Death. And it's not just joy for Paul, but for all those who know Jesus. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to read from God's Word, uh, beginning in verse uh, 18b. And this is what it says. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's God's word. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Uh, Lord, I'm really thankful today for your word. Thankful, God, that as we turn to it, uh, we can be sure that you are speaking and that you will, uh, you will help us, Lord, to know you more and to understand ourselves better. I pray that would, help, that would happen now, Lord. I pray, God, that you would use me in spite of myself and, God, that for everyone here, we would gain a greater understanding of who we are as human beings and who you are as God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the question that we're, we're supposed to answer here is, is why is Paul rejoicing? We've seen him rejoicing before. He's rejoicing again. He's giving us some reasons for his joy, and there are really three of them. The first is that he's joyful because his deliverance is secure. The second is he's joyful because his purpose in life is great. And the third is because his life, life itself, is in Christ. These are truths that we see here in Scripture, truths that don't just apply to Paul, but also apply to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. So as we work through the text... Uh, I'm going to apply those, those truths, his reasons for joy, to us. So the first reason that we have for joy, regardless of our circumstance, is this. Our deliverance is secure. I get this from the first couple verses, uh, 18 and 19. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So deliverance usually means to be set free. And you might think that he's saying here, well, I'm happy because I know I'm going to be let out of prison. It's just a matter of time. But that doesn't exactly work. For one thing, he doesn't know if he's going to be set free from prison. If he knew that, he probably wouldn't be contemplating death, which he does for most of the passage. Right? If he had a sense, you know, God speaks to Paul, gives him vision. If he had a sense he was going to be set free, he probably he wouldn't be thinking about death so much. But in fact, he's considering the real possibility he's going to die. There's another reason why deliverance isn't just talking about his current captivity, and that is the word itself, it, it actually has a much grander meaning. Very often it refers to salvation. It's translated salvation. And so here Paul is not just referring to his own captivity, but to, to a greater freedom. Now, throughout the history of the church, of God's people, um, God has continually uh, demonstrated that it's his desire to set us free from bondage. Uh, back in the time of the Old Testament, in the Exodus, the, the grand display at just at the beginning of God's people becoming kind of a people, a community, God set them free from Pharaoh. He brought them through the Red Sea. And from that moment on, through the prophets, he continually said, there will be a time when you will be completely free. That's my promise to you. The chains will be gone. You'll be liberated. Whatever captivity you endure here on earth, you will be free from that. The kingdom of heaven is a place where there are no chains. But Paul here is talking about an even greater freedom. And that's because there is an even greater, an even more serious form of captivity. It's not physical, it's not political captivity. It's captivity, bondage to sin. The Bible says really clearly that every human being on the planet is born into sin and thus is in chains, in a sense, to our own sin. And we see this uh, explained clearly, again by Paul, in the book of Romans. He's talking about the, the nature of humanity apart from God. And he says this. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So what he's saying is, here's what's true about people. 
that the one whom we obey, who we give ourselves over to, we are enslaved to them. We are in bondage to them. And the truth about humanity apart from God is that we choose to do what's wrong rather than what's right. From the very beginning, we've said, I know, God, that you are there, that you've created this world, and yet I have, I have a better idea. I want to go my own way. It feels, it feels very natural for us to say, I think I know what's best in my life. Even if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know that you still wrestle with this. That there's so many times throughout the day when, when it feels so right to do the opposite of what God is saying. That, that's an indication of the strength of sin. And apart from God himself, we have no power over it. And we see in the text there that, that the consequences of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death. And that's the, the, the true and greater uh, bondage that humanity is suffering from. And yet Paul who's there in physical chains, he says, I know that my deliverance is secure. I know that I have been set free from bondage. I have salvation to look forward to. And you say, Paul, how do you know that? Because it's something that's already been done in his life. He finishes his thought uh, from Romans 6, and he explains the, the freedom that we get in Christ. And he says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's the good news. That's the hope. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's the fulfillment of the promise that God made way back when, saying, if you are one of my people, you will experience freedom. Now, it's not a complete freedom yet. It's a spiritual freedom that in time, Paul is saying, through your prayers, through the work of the Spirit in me, I will experience it fully. But right now, in Christ, I am, from God's point of view, I am free. And that means that sin no longer has power over me. This is reason for joy in Paul's life. This, this is the good news for him. This is why, even in the midst of this difficult time, he has reason for joy. Because, because though he feels captive, he knows in his heart that he is actually free. And for us, we, we probably aren't going to be in some sort of captivity this week physically. Right? We, probably, we don't have chains. We aren't probably in prison. If you're here this morning, you're probably, maybe you're going back. I don't know. But we don't experience that kind of prison. Maybe it's a day pass. I don't know how it works. Um, but, but there are ways in which we, we genuinely feel held captive, aren't there? It can be any circumstance in our life where we, we suffer from this idea that, that we can't get out. It could be, it could be a dead-end job. Or just a difficult job where, where you know that you have to be there, you need the paycheck, you, you, don't have, you can't get retrained right now, you have to be there, and yet it's drudgery. It's difficult. And you just, in the morning, you hate getting up, and you hate going there, and yet you know that's where God has you. There is still freedom for you. There is still the promise of God of liberation in your heart from a greater captivity and the promise that eventually you will experience it fully. Sometimes we feel this kind of bondage in relationships where, where it's just difficult. Maybe it's just in marriage right now. It's just, it was great. And just for right now, there's a season of real challenge and difficulty and everything in you just wants to run, but you can't. There's a real sense in which God says, there's, there's freedom for you in the midst of this. That, that be mindful of the fact that the greater bondage that, that you had, it's, it's been dealt with. That because Jesus came and he he took on death for himself. The wages of sin is death, but now that wage, that, that, that payment, 
Jesus took care of that for us on the cross. And so now when you consider your life, you consider your future, there is not bondage to sin, but there is freedom in Christ. And so even our present situation, it it changes. See, the truth is that even in physical captivity, even in a hospital bed, even in a situation where there's no physical means of, of getting up and walking, there is still freedom. There is still the promise of God that in loneliness, in, in financial ruin, in any of the circumstances of life that hem us in, in addiction, God is saying there is a genuine sense of freedom that comes spiritually through Christ and that begins in us and works itself out in time so that we will experience it fully. And Paul says, I got reason for joy. Even though I'm here, chained to a guard, He's telling the people in Philippi, I rejoice because I know that my deliverance is secure and it's true for us as well. So that's the first thing. Here, if you know Jesus, your deliverance, your salvation, your freedom is secure. But secondly, our purpose is great. Uh, Paul says this in uh, verse 20. He says, as it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Uh, The phrase, as it is, kind of connects the two ideas. He's saying, just as I am joyful in my deliverance, I'm also joyful because I have a purpose for my life. I have an eager expectation and a hope that the purpose in my life will come to fruition. And what is his purpose? That he will honor Jesus with his body, with his life. Now, I think we all know that it's really important to have a purpose in your life. That's usually what kind of the late teens, 20s are all about, right? We're saying, man, I just, I want to know, what am I supposed to do? What is my life about? We're, we're praying, if we're Christian, we're saying, Lord, would you just open the right doors, give me direction in school, and career, in relationship? Is this the person I'm supposed to marry? Is this where I'm supposed to work? We're saying, God, I just, I would love it if I could know what my life was about. If you would give me a direction and a purpose, then I would have the opportunity for satisfaction. Because if I know what I'm supposed to do, then I can at least pursue it. If I don't know, I'm just, I'm lost. When we don't have purpose, our life is stunted. We aren't able to flourish in the way that God would want for us. And there are a lot of different ways, a lot of different goals we can have for our life. A lot of them are good. Career is good. Education is good. Relationships are great. Uh, Achievements, artistic expression. These are all good things for us. But Paul says, I got the greatest thing. I got the greatest purpose for my life. And you know what it is? That in my life or in my death, I'm going to honor Jesus. Now, it's not just Paul's answer for himself. It's God's answer for all of us. And this may seem like a grand claim that here we would know exactly what every human being on the planet, that's the best thing for every human being. But it actually makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, it's always natural and right to honor the people who deserve it. Think about um, here in Port Coquitlam. One of our hometown heroes is Terry Fox, right? This this month, I think, the season is when there's, there's a hometown run a few weeks ago in the, in the schools. The kids are all doing the Terry Fox run. We continue to honor and celebrate Terry. Why? Because he deserves it. The legacy is one that we can genuinely be glad for and celebrate. Terry himself had an interesting story because at the beginning of his run, I don't know if you know, but he was at the Atlantic Ocean. He dipped a, a jar in. He was going to carry it across Canada, run across Canada, dump it in the Pacific Ocean. At the beginning... There wasn't a lot of attention for Terry. Um, In fact, as he began his run in certain eastern provinces that I won't mention, they actually made him get off the main road and run on secondary roads. 
because they were like, this guy's running, he's, there's traffic, we, you can't do this. They said, you have to go run over there to get in your miles. But in time, people get, began to take note. Why? Because it was a noble cause. He was running to raise money for cancer research. And more importantly, they began to get to know Terry. And he was a genuine, virtuous, selfless guy. In all the attention that came his way, he was always not interested in it. He was literally sacrificing himself for the sake of a greater good. And by the end of his run, by the time he had to, to finish and stop running, there was crowds that would celebrate. Every town he went into, the schools would close. They would bring out a police escort. They would honor him greatly. Why? Be because he deserved it. It was a natural thing for everyone to say, man, this is a great thing. This is a great guy. We want to honor him. We want to celebrate him. It's the same with Jesus. It's the same thing except even greater. Because Terry, he, I mean, he was laboring to bring physical healing. He wanted more and more people to, to find healing and research from cancer. But Jesus came and he said, in every area of your life that you need healing, I've come to fix that. Relationally, uh, in, in terms of uh, your hope for life, mentally, physically, spiritually, Jesus says, I am the healer. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to bring comfort and hope. And so in all things, you can honor me because it's the best thing for us. He is the best thing for us. And it's the best thing for our life to be about. Because it's natural for us to honor that which is worthy of great honor. And Jesus is that. Now you might ask though, okay Matt, I see for Paul, for him it means to, to honor Jesus with his life, it's really clear, he's in prison. I mean, he's, he's being persecuted for his faith. Is that what it takes? Like, does this mean that we have to wait for kind of these big moments of life where we really stick our, you know, our neck on the line and we say, no, I'm a Christian or whatever the case may be? And the answer is sometimes. Sometimes it's going to look like that. But most of the time, it will look like some very small things just in the way that we live our life. The word itself, uh, to honor Jesus, it means to enlarge or magnify. So really what's being described here is a life where Jesus Christ is magnified. Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators that I read on this, he had a great phrase, which I found helpful. He said, uh, what it means to honor Jesus in my body, in my life, is this. He says, my body will be a theater in which Christ's glory will be displayed. And I love that, that visual. Because a theater, when I go to a theater, I very rarely tell stories to people about how great the theater was. But I'll, I'll talk about the play the whole purpose of a theater is that you go into the theater, the lights come down low, and you forget the theater is there, and you're totally focused on what's going on on the stage. The whole purpose of the theater is that you forget it's there, and you celebrate and are excited about the actors and the director and the costume designer, all those things. And it's the same thing for us in our life. To honor Jesus means that, means that people forget about us. They don't pay attention to us, but rather they see what it is that God has done in us what it is that Jesus is doing in us, and we are quick to celebrate all the things that Christ has done, and through that, we honor Jesus. And like I said, this usually happens in the small things in life. If we really think about it, there are, there are hundreds, thousands of opportunities each day where we can, we can really honor Jesus. Now, here are a couple of them. Imagine at work, if you're in an office situation, and there's someone who's, who's always trash-talking some of the other guys at work. And you're in that situation again where he's starting to talk bad and, and you have the option. You could say nothing. You could, you could sit back. You don't want to get involved. Or you, or you could step out. You could intervene with grace and you could speak up and defend this person. Why would you do that? Because isn't that how Jesus acted with you? Didn't he step out? Didn't he, he put himself out there so that you would be protected? 
so that someone would be an advocate for you? We don't know what that would lead to. It may lead to a lot of trash talk in your direction, but the point is that you're not so concerned about yourself. You're concerned about honoring Christ in your relationships, in your work environment. What about a season of, um, of spiritual dryness? I'm not sure if, uh, if you've experienced that, where there are just some, some seasons of life where you, you just feel far from God. And, and you wake up in the morning and you have no real desire to read the Bible. Uh, you don't really feel like praying. It doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Uh, this morning you would, just, you would just rather sleep in than come together with the church. And yet, and yet you remember that God reached out to you. You remember that even though you don't, you don't feel it, you know from the word that, that God loves you. That because he sent his son to die on your behalf, he must love you. He cares for you and he wants you to be close. And so you're in prayer and saying, Lord, I don't feel close to you, but God, I trust that you are there. Would you help me to continue to be faithful? You, with, you and your body and your mind and your, your heart, everything about you, you say, I don't feel it, but God, I trust you. I want to honor you. I want to believe that in time, I will experience the closeness that I once had. Another great example is, is sexual purity. There's a real sense in which when you resist temptation and resist lust in your life, maybe in your relationships with a boyfriend or girlfriend or just on your own, in that you are saying, Jesus, I have these desires, ones that you've given me, but you've given me for a certain situation, a marriage. And so outside of that, I'm going to, I'm going to resist. I'm going to put you first because I believe that it will lead to my greater joy. And because in that, I am honoring you. I'm saying, you've done everything for me. I trust you, and so I'm going to do things your way in all of those situations. And many, many more were saying, I honor Jesus. I want to magnify him. Why? Because he is worthy of it. And because as I do that, I am never disappointed. It's the only goal, the only life purpose that will never disappoint because Jesus endures unto the end. And amazingly, it's not just in life that we can do this, but Paul says it's actually in death. That's why it's the greatest goal, because it pushes us through past death. This is the third reason we have for joy. Paul says um, our life, his life, is in Jesus. Uh, This next verse, verse 21, is the root of all joy for the Christian life. Paul summarizes the foundational belief of every Christian in verse 21 when he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, In the Greek, the verbs are taken out. So it just says, for me, to live Christ... To die gain. And you look at that and, and you say, what exactly is he saying? He's contemplating there at, at the, he's, he's staring at death and life. He doesn't know which will happen. He's at the precipice of death and he's contemplating, what does it really mean to be alive as a Christian? And what are the possibilities? What is ahead for me in death if I believe in Jesus? That phrase, to live as Christ, is a little bit uh, ambiguous. You might say, what what exactly does he mean there, to live as Christ? Well, to be a Christian uh, is not to follow a set of rules. Unfortunately, that's often the understanding people have. That's sometimes how churches operate. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that God has done something new inside you. He has given you new spiritual life. It begins inside you, and then it works itself out in all areas of your life. There is real spiritual change that comes by the power of God. And it makes us new from the inside out. Here are a couple of verses just to explain it so well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What that means is, when we become a Christian, we come to faith, we are no longer simply a body. We are no longer just flesh, waiting to grow old and get sick and die. We have new life, spiritual life, that has been given to us. This is why Paul could say with confidence, I know my deliverance, my salvation is secure. And I know that I will achieve the purpose that God has for me. Why? Because God has begun something in me. And what he begins, he brings to completion. We saw that in verse, in verse 6. Paul says really clearly, your faith has begun by God. And he will carry you through until the end. And so even, even in death, even in times of great trial, you know that there will be perseverance and life beyond the grave because Jesus has taken care of death. We are no longer subject to that. So Paul, he's got very certain answers, joyful answers about the big picture of his life. But he's not so sure about tomorrow. You notice that? In the last part of the passage, he's really, he's contemplating life and death. He's not sure what's going to happen. Have you been in that situation where you know, okay, I know God. I know you love me. I know all this big thing. These things are true for me, but what do I do tomorrow? What do I do about this situation? For Paul, he's in the sort of unique situation of standing before life and death and being able to contemplate the two. He says in verse 22, uh, he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, Paul, Paul's not contemplating suicide. He's just using this as an example, right? He's not depressed. If you remember, he's joyful. And remember why he's writing this. This isn't his diary. He's not contemplating death. He's writing this to encourage a group of Christians in Philippi who are also facing persecution and death. And so he's saying, here I am. If it were up to me, if I had to just look at the two and in the perspective of the gospel, life and death, which is better? He kind of makes a pro-con list, you know, like pros and cons for both. And amazingly, it's a very tight race. So let's look at both. Uh, first, in verse 22, life. Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. What he's saying is, if I live, if God sets me free, if Caesar says, oh, you could go, then that's good news because there's more work for me to do. He wants to be spiritually fruitful. He wants to share the gospel with more people, plant more churches. And most importantly, he's really excited about seeing the Philippians again. There's, there's joy in his life when he sees the people that he interacts with and he sees them grow in faith. And I think that's true for us as well. It's great to be in a relationship, but, but man, isn't it, isn't it fantastic when you're working with someone or you're talking with someone and some of your influence actually helps them to grow or to be comforted, especially with parents, of course, kids growing from the little hooligans they are into respectable members of society. We say, praise God. There's such joy in that. Not just because they're out of the house. There's joy in that. But because all the work that I put into them, I see it come to fruition. Paul is saying, if, if there's life for me, man, there's, there's spiritual, there's fruitfulness for me, and that's, there's joy in that. There's such joy in the life that God gives us, in the relationships that God gives us. In fact, there's so much uh, joy and, and comfort and familiarity there that you might look at this, this thing that Paul's doing, and you'd say, Paul, why, why are you even making a list for death? I mean, isn't, isn't death the opposite of all of that? Isn't death the end, all the familiarity and comfort and joys of life? Isn't it the end to relationships? 
Doesn't it mean brokenness and uncertainty, a step into the unknown? How could there be anything good about that? And the truth of the matter is that there is great sorrow in death. I was reminded of this. Um, I was listening to, uh, I listen to podcasts, NPR podcasts all the time. And, uh, and this week I heard a story of, uh, of a town in Japan. The town's name is Otsuchi. And it was a town that was on the, uh, the coast uh, back in 2011. If you remember, they had a big earthquake there, huge tsunami, the nuclear reactor melted down, and uh, it was a horrible disaster. And this town was right, right on the edge, which meant that it got hit full force with these 30-foot waves. And, and everyone in the town lost someone. Um, everyone, family members, multiple family members. And there was one man, as they, were, as they were rebuilding, as they were working through all their grief, one man, his name is Itaro Sazaki. Uh, his, he lost his cousin. He was very, very close to his cousin. And he just, he longed for some way to connect with his cousin again. And so what he did, he did kind of a strange thing. He built a, uh, a phone booth in his backyard. And this phone booth had a phone in it, but it wasn't connected to anything. And he used it as an opportunity to say all the things that he wanted to say to his cousin because he couldn't do that anymore. Uh, he said in an interview, because my thoughts couldn't be relayed over a regular phone line, I wanted them to be carried on the wind. And so this became known as the wind telephone. And uh, we have pictures of it there. Uh, he invited everyone from the town to, say, to just come and work through their mourning, work through their grief, to be able to say the things that they wish they could say. And one of the Japanese uh, television stations did a, a documentary on this, and they, they recorded a lot of the conversations, the one-way conversations from people. And what you notice as you, as you listen to them is that one of the greatest sources of anxiety and sadness is, is the uncertainty that people have about death. Uh, they don't know where their loved ones are. They don't know if they will ever see them again. Uh, there's a couple of uh, just excerpts I'd like to read for you. Uh, the first, this is from an older man. He had lost his wife and daughter and his mother, and he entered the phone booth on a winter day, and, um, and he said this. He said, my wife, where are you? It's so cold, but you're not getting cold, are you? Are grandma and daughter Nuki with you too? Come back soon. Be found soon. Everyone is waiting for you, okay? I'll build a house in the same place. Eat something, anything. Just be alive somewhere, anywhere. I'm so lonely. And another young man who lost his whole family, his mom and dad and his wife and one-year-old daughter, said these words. He said, uh, Dad, Mom, Mine, his wife, and Issei, his daughter. It's already been five years since the disaster. If this voice reaches you, please listen. Sometimes I don't know what I'm living for. Issei, please let me hear you call me Papa. Even though I built a new house, Dad, Mom, Mine, and Issei, without all of you, it's meaningless. I, I want to hear your reply, but I can't hear anything. And he hung up then. This is, this is the reality. We know this is what death does. It, it brings brokenness and sorrow. And the Bible says very clearly that for all of us, Christian or not, our, our role in these situations is to, is to mourn with those who mourn. It's not a time, if, if there's a season in your life where you're, you're working with someone or just being with someone, we're called to weep with them. We're called to mourn. There is real sorrow in death. Even Paul, uh, in a few weeks we're going to see in Philippians, he has a friend, Epaphroditus, who's very, very sick. And he says, if Epaphroditus had died, there would have been sorrow for me. 
real sorrow because, because I would have lost him. And there's a time for mourning, a time for sadness. But Paul talks differently about death. He doesn't refer to it with uncertainty, with the unknown. He says, in fact, that death, for those who are in Christ, is the beginning of something greater. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. Between life and death, Paul is hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And you say, Paul, how could that be better? How could it possibly be better than the life you have with the people you love and who know you? And part of the answer is in the, te- uh, the text itself. That word depart, the imagery that's associated with that word is of a ship uh, pulling up anchor and sailing into the sea, but not towards some far off land. It's a ship that's heading for home. See, very often ships, because of the weather, because of the storms, they'd have to stay in a port for months at a time and everyone on ship, they'd be longing to go home, but they couldn't. And then one day the sun would come out it would be springtime and they'd finally, the captain would say, pull up anchor, set sail, we're heading home. Not into uncertainty, but into that place where everyone knows us, where there's comfort and joy. We've been longing to go there. Paul says, that's my desire, to depart and be in that place where I am known by Christ himself, where I'm face to face with Jesus. See, for the Christian, death is the end of uncertainty. It's the end of danger. It's the end of angst and loneliness and, and apprehension and the unknowns of life, it's the end of all that, all of a sudden, all the things, all the yearnings in our heart, they're fulfilled because we're with the one who brings healing and wholeness, not just to our lives, but to the whole world. And so in Christ, there's a real sense in which we can have peace in the face of death. Paul says, in fact, it's actually better. It's better that I would depart and be with Jesus because for Paul, remember, his life, it's no picnic. He's always in jail. He's always being beaten. He's saying, man, I'd, I'd love to go there now. Hear me, he's not suicidal wanting to go there. He's just saying, that's better. That's better for everyone who knows Christ because in that place, there are no tears, there's no more sorrow, and we're with our Savior. But interestingly, in the end, he feels like God is gonna uh, give him life. If you look at verse 25, he says, convinced of this. This isn't uh, a word from God. It's just, this is what he thinks. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now just think of the peace that is in this man's heart. He's there and basically what he's saying is, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, if it's life or if it's death, I'm good with that. Why? Because I know that I will have deliverance and because I know that I will achieve my purpose. I have peace, whatever you want to do with me. Can you imagine what that's like? Do you have that as you get up in the morning to say, Lord, whatever happens today, I have peace. I have joy because the big picture questions are answered and because even in the small things, I know that you are at work. I know that you have purpose for me. I know that you love me. That's that's the realities of what it means to know Christ. And that's what Paul wants, not just for, for him and for the Philippian church, but for all those who read these words. That's why they're there so that we might have the joy that Paul has. So that as we grow closer to Jesus, we know that no matter what comes our way, whether it's, it's the worst, whether it's the most dire circumstances in someone's hospital room, ourselves in the hospital bed, there is no longer any reason for anxiety as we look past death to see where we will go if we have Jesus who has already taken death on himself. That's the good news. That's the hope. That's the reason Paul has for joy. And one thing 
One question I think that this text is then leading us to ask for ourselves is this. If we had the opportunity, if you had the opportunity to write verse 21, how would you fill in the blanks? Honestly, if you consider your life, how you're living it, the convictions of your heart, how would you fill, fill in this? To live is, is what? And to die is what? Like, what is it that you're living for? To live is, to live is work? To live is family? To live is artistic expression, new experiences, relationships, all good things. But if that's your life, it will very much inform how you write the second blank. Because then what is to die? To die is sadness. To die is sorrow. To die is nothingness. To die is the end. See, for Paul, and for every believer, to live is Christ. Because he gives us life. An enduring life a life outside of ourselves that then, then takes us over and makes us new and gives us hope beyond the grave. So then to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's better. It's the hope of glory. It's why Paul says, death, where is your sting? There is now no sting in death. Of course there's sadness. Of course we're going to cry. Someone has gone. But we know if they're a Christian, we know where they've gone. And so this morning, my hope is that, is that you find encouragement in that that even in the depths of, of the most difficult situations in our life, with the prospect of death, we have, we have joy if we're in Christ. And if you don't have that, my, my hope for you today is that, is that you have a longing for it. We would love to help you know Christ this morning. Come down with someone who's praying here and to come to faith, to say, Jesus, I, I know I need that help. I know that I'm a sinner. I know you've taken all that away through the cross. I want to put my faith in you. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord God, we are thankful for this word. Thank you, God, that through Paul, you've given us a hope that goes beyond this life, beyond the grave, uh, to the hope of glory, the hope of heaven. I pray, Lord, for all of us here, God. I pray for all the circumstances of our lives, Lord, that you would uh, help us to remember that we have a hope that endures, we have a joy that endures. And Lord, would you... Would you help us to be a blessing to those around us? Whatever situation we are in, whether it is in a hospital room this week, whether it's at work or at school, just at home, God, I pray that we would, we would lay hold of this truth, that you, you greatly love us and you are working in us and through us by the power of the Spirit of God because of the work of Christ. And God, I pray that there would be a joy in our hearts, uh, even in the most difficult times, because it honors you, because it's good for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.